Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Curtis Lockhart, head of research at the Charter Cities Institute. Today on the podcast, I speak with Leonard Wanchikon. Leonard is a professor of politics and economics at Princeton University. His research covers political economy, development economics, and economic history with a focus on sub-Saharan Africa. Leonard was born in Benin, and we discuss his honestly amazing story from a boy in central Benin to political prisoner for a time and ultimately to tenured professor at Princeton today. Leonard, as if we needed more, is also the founder and president of the African School of Economics, founded in 2014 again in Benin and now one of the most elite universities on the continent. And we talk about all this today, so enjoy. Welcome to the show, Leonard. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. There's a lot to talk about, but first, as I mentioned to you before before the show started recording, we had your friend and, and co-author, Harvard economist Nathan mm-hmm. Nunn, on the podcast a few weeks back. And I mentioned we were going to have you on yeah. and ask Nathan, what should I ask you? And he just said, if Leonard is willing to tell it, ask him to tell his story about how he went from boy in Benin to a tenured professor at Princeton. So let's start from from there, from the very beginning. Talk about your hometown in, in central Benin, where you were born, and what was it like as a place? Yeah, so thank you very much. Thanks for, for, for having me on. Yes, I was born in a very small village in Benin. The village had three characteristics. The first one is one of the communities that had been exposed to education in late 19th century. A Catholic school was set up there in October 1895. And the second one is that it's a very multicultural place in the sense that the town was made of immigrants from several, from many many other areas in Benin and Togo. And so as a result, it's a place where people are very open-minded at the same time, value education very, very highly. So I grew up in this environment, and as a result, especially with the help of my parents, I aspiration from my uncle and my parents, I did very, very well in school. And, but then at the same time, very early, I was exposed to political activism. Because some of the students from the village, there were students from the village who went to study in Senegal and France, and we got exposed to left-wing activism very early. So in eighth grade, I, I was already very active to a point where I organized my first student sit-in when I was in eighth grade. And when I was in 11th grade, I, I was arrested for the first time opposing the, the dictatorship, uh, the, the dictatorial regime. I think it was in 1976, and I, was, I spent about two weeks, but 
very, very hard two weeks in prison when I was in 10th grade. And so when I started the university, uh, so I joined forces with students coming from other, from other regions, and we set up a student movement, went underground and fighting for democracy and human rights. And this is during Matthew. Matthew, exactly. So first, I was expelled from the university for for me, one of the organizers of 1979 student uprising. And I stayed in the country for five years underground, more or less as a professional social activist or professional revolutionaries, we used to say, we used to call us, we used to call ourselves. And later on, there was an amnesty. We went back we, to the campus and then only to organize a much bigger student uprising. And this time my luck ran out. I stay in hiding for two weeks, but then I was arrested. And I spent about 18, 18 months in prison and I tricked the military guards, at least the leadership military guard, to get the permission to go to get medical treatments because I was I had arthritis, very severe arthritis. And then from there I escaped. But in fact, before I escaped, I got the permission the first time and came back. And I know a second time I also came back. So they were confident that I was not going anywhere. So I decided to leave and I went to Nigeria. You escaped and then just fled across the border exactly. to the east. Where in Nigeria did you go? Lagos. Lagos. Lagos, yeah. It was, uh, I described this in my book. It was extremely, it's strangely very smooth. Even the guard did not know, did not sense that I was about to leave, that I was about to escape because I was always very cool, very calm, very collective. They knew that I was not going anywhere. And it's only when I, when, I, when I went across the border to go to Nigeria that they realized that I left. And from there, I managed to become political refugee, you know, under, with the support of the UN, the United Nations High Commission of Refugee, Lagos. What is interesting is that my first, I got my documents to, to settle in Sweden. But a week before I, I would travel to Sweden, the rumor came that we, we could be kidnapped in Lagos. So the Red Cross took me, flew me to Abidjan. And when I went to the, um, the Swedish embassy to travel, and they told me, yeah, you, here you are safe, then you cannot travel to Sweden anymore. You go to settle in Cote d'Ivoire. So that's how I got into the, I, got, I went to the Canadian embassy and I got my papers. And then about maybe four or five months later, then I went to Canada. And in Canada, I started studying mathematics, but somebody, one of the faculty from economics department advised me to take economics and they put me in the fast track program and I was able to enroll in a master's program only after a semester. So when I came to Canada, I mean, I was, I, my only degree, well, my only degree was a high school degree. I have one year of college. But after one semester in Laval, I was allowed to basically start my master's degree. And I did very well. I got into a PhD program at UBC. And from there, somebody advised me to go to the U.S. And I transferred from UBC to Northwestern. So from the time that I escaped, which is December 86 to 94, so basically I went from basically 
not knowing what Yale was and didn't know any basically any major university to become a professor there. So it took me eight years with a high school degree from Benin to become an assistant professor at Yale University. I think it was very, very rapid change from a jail in exactly. Benin. To exactly. And it took yeah, I mean, I, very, I, I benefited from the flexibility of North American, particularly Canadian education system, because I mean, I'm still wondering how they allow me to enroll for a master's degree without actually showing an undergraduate degree. I mean, I was mature. I was already 32, but still. And then the second one, it was like my life in prison just gave me the maturity, emotional maturity, but also the depth of knowledge that I need to be successful. You know, because when I was there and during the, the years I was in, I was living underground. I read Karl Marx, Das Capital, maybe 15 times. Philosophy, I was, you know, working on math, problem sets with my colleagues. So I was, in fact, I was taking care of myself intellectually and emotionally. I read Nelson Mandela's Long Rock to Freedom, and during his stint on in Robben Island, he was reading the law and getting a law degree. And he was, he said, I think his quote was, I, I was preparing. Right. And, and it sounds like, you know, not to compare you with, with Mandela, but it seems like you were doing a fair bit of preparing yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, for instance, even though I was not trained, I was not, I was not trained in modern economics when I was back in Benin. I read quite broadly in like uh, history, in sociology, Martian economics in particular. So I think when I started my PhD, I basically have a sense of what I wanted to do. Political economy was natural for me. Any topic that I pick, I can use my experience. You know, I can use my, the depth of my knowledge on the topics, you know, to move the past. You know, I mean, for instance, I finished my PhD at Northwestern in less than three years. There's a ton to unpack here. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about, about the Benin experience before going on to your, your academic stuff. So as you said, your education gets interrupted by your political activism. You get arrested and you're in prison for, you said, 18 months. What motivated you into the political activism? Can you just kind of tell or explain about what Benin was like under the dictatorship and what you were campaigning against the Kariku regime for? Yeah. So in 1972, there was a coup. Benin became basically a one-party state. A one-party state, very a dictatorial regime, which is a break from the past because from 1960 to 1972, even though the country was politically unstable with a lot of with coup, the fundamental rights like freedom of organization, freedom of uh, expression, and all were always present. So in 1976, four years after after the coup, I, with some colleagues, we put together a student newspaper to be very critical of the government. Talk about the lack of freedom, talk about mocking their Marxist ideology, even though we really don't know what it was. They were, I was arrested the first time. But then later on, the regime became more dictatorial, more oppressive, more repressive. That's how we set up a left-wing movements. So I was one of the leaders on campus. So we organized several actions on campus, basically asked for better living conditions, better 
more participation of students in the way the university was run. So I was early on, I think I had this sense of democracy being not only fundamental rights, but also about participation, public management. So for, I remember one of our, our demands on campus was that there is some kind of, that some kind of uh, audit commission on campus that look how to follow basically the way the school was managed, the university was managed in terms of finances, in terms of programming, in terms of curriculum. And we demanded that students sit on that commission, that there is a, a voice of the student in that commission. So I think it's something we we're a bit ahead of our time in terms of the way we really understood democracy. It's not simply about economic rights in a sense, you know, basically scholarships and others, especially for people coming from very modest background like us. It was not only like basic rights, you know, right to organize, to speak up, academic freedom. It was also citizens' involvement, participation in government, you know, in the way the government was managed and run. No, I think it's uh, it was it was very very interesting. You know, I mean, we we got a lot of respect from the students, but also from also the central administration about how how mature we were. You know, I mean, there was one event, for instance, that's also that's very interesting to me when we were organizing our preparing for our the largest student demonstration maybe in the history of the country. I think it was May 6, nineteen eighty five. Before that, there was a sit-in and there was some confrontation between the police called Gendarmerie in Benin and the students. And one of the unruly students basically was able to disarm the policeman and got his, his arm, his gun. When he came to us, because I was in hiding and directing the movement, we asked him to return the gun in a specific place and send a note to tell them where it was. So, I mean, it, it was, it, it was to, to tell you how strongly committed we were to nonviolence. And the movement was very, very peaceful, nonviolent, and we were really committed to that. I think it was, uh, I think, clearly one of my, my best time in, in my life, you know, because... Um, the level of maturity, emotional, intellectual, at the same time, the leadership skill that we developed during those days, I think it was on parallel. I was very, very lucky that I was able to escape. Can I ask about the, about the escape? So you're in prison. You said you kind of smoothly started talking to the the guard, how did you how did you convince the guard so, to, yeah, to let so, you out of prison? So basically my personality, you know, my personality. I mean, <laughs> you charmed. Yeah, I was constantly talking to them. I remember, for instance, that I had a conversation with one of them about torture, where we were being tortured brutally. But I, I didn't, you know, I was not showing any anger, really. When they come to me, I will have a conversation with one of them and say, you guys are totally stupid. You know, I mean, like... The way in a civilized society people deal with political prisoners is to get them to talk, get them to give information, confront them with fact and with evidence. 
you guys are acting like animals, you know, like beating up people here and there. And I was talking like, talking like this, like smiling. So people appreciate the fact that I was, I was not confrontational, really. I was always, I always tried to persuade, try to get people to basically not see us as enemies, but as interlocutors. The day we were maybe you know, tortured for straight five hours, you know, we have uh, we were confronted, and the question was that I was asked was, do you know where your friends are? Question that you typically be ask you so that you would denounce your friend. Or if you give us a name, a list of names of people who they were able to identify as members of the organization and they want us to tell them where they were. And I remember my answer was basically, well, you know, those the name you gave us we, there are some of them where we know. We, I know them very well. I may not know where they are, but I know them very well. Perhaps I even I have a sense of where they live. Others, I don't know. But then there is no way I'm going to tell you. Why? Because it's totally irrational. I mean, like, for instance, if uh, I give you any name, you are going to beat me up anyway. I don't give any name, you are going to beat me up anyway. So I might as well not say anything, you know. And also, it's totally immoral because when we were asked whether we want to leave the movement, we have a choice to say no, and we did not say no. Conviction. Yeah, that no, that you can always explain, engage, even even we, we even with the enemy, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I think I have the reputation, whatever I, I, I was, as somebody who was committed, determined, but who was not like angry, confrontational, and so on, okay? So basically, I mean, they have a lot of respect for me. I left December, yeah, so it was in June. And- Which year, June? June, In June 86. I was arrested on July 18, 1985. And in June 86, nearly a year later, I decided, when I have red meat, I have my arthritis become more severe for some reason. You know, my knees like blowing up and so on. So I did that on purpose and they asked me to go to the to go for treatment at the hospital. And I went and then I came back. So and I played that game several times. And the second time they asked me to go to and it's a hospital in the main city. So they took me all the way to Cotonou. I was detained in far north, Paraku. And then when I went back, when, when I was in the city, so they even allowed me to go out to see my parents, to say hi. I mean, I was under escort, but, but anyway, I was able to see them. So they started treating me, treating me a little bit differently. And in fact, what is interesting is that they thought I could also try to talk to those who were underground, who were living on, who were not arrested, to see mm-hmm. whether there can be some kind of negotiated settlement between the government and the opposition uh, party. So I was, they tried to use me as, as a liaison, I should say, between the two. They trusted me, despite the fact that I was 
I was known to be one of the number, I mean, the number one or the number two in the whole movement, at least um, among people who were arrested. Who were, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, now the third time, I, when they allowed me to leave, then I managed to get someone to help me to cross the border and went to Nigeria, you know, and I wrote to them and say, well, you know, I decided to stay in hiding to finish my treatment before I come back. So if you arrest any of my parents as a retaliation, I'm not coming back again. But when I, when I wrote that letter, I was already in, like, I was already in Lagos. So, but I was trying to move everything out. And then did they, arrested, did they end up coming after any of your yeah. close acquaintances? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They arrested my brother. They arrested my uncle. Actually, one of my uncle told them that he's the one who told me to leave the country. If they want to arrest him, to keep him in prison for forever, they could. That I was the future of the family. He couldn't accept me, uh, stay in prison for a long, long time, and so on. So anyway, mm-hmm. so things went smoothly even at that level. What I remember about those times is the fact that I was not afraid. I was not afraid. I did everything in a very, for lack of a better word, I mean, a very smooth, non-confrontational way. I learned to engage even with the enemy. And I mean, sometimes they can be, if they might be indifferent, sometimes they can be charmed. Because I still do not understand why in the world they left me go to treatment. Two times. The last two times was more or less unsupervised. But at the same time, I was very open-minded. You know, I mean, like, I mean the, the organization that I was part of was very, very left-wing. Mm-hmm. Very left-wing. It was actually, it was called the Communist Party of Benin. But then, as soon as I left... I basically start reading about communist Russia, about Stalin and so on. I turned my back to that ideology f- forever. Mm-hmm. Was this when you were was this when you were in Canada? No, was I was this- in Lagos already. I okay. reading. But when I went to Canada, I mean I saw more than 20 documentaries on Stalin. And this is very important for today. You know, like for instance, I understand that for in this country, maybe the progressives has to stop using the socialist and communist label. You know, because mm-hmm. like them, I was committed to social justice, committed to human rights. But socialism is far more than that. It's an oppressive mm-hmm. regime. And for many people who have lived through those regimes, it's kind of offensive. So because, I mean, it's not, it's more than... Beyond the kind of socialist rhetoric, it's a very one-party state, repressive, and some of the worst in terms of political oppression. And as a result, anyway, so I went through that. Karekiu-esque. Yeah. yeah. I went through that, and I, di- I started distancing my, my, myself completely. The analytics and the commitment to equality, to justice, and to those are things that I was committed on very early, so I was very vulnerable to the socialist propaganda, you know, and I, it was fine, you know. I and then you you studied a little history and, and I studied a little history, and I thought that you know, so so that's why I'm, I feel very lucky mm-hmm. that I was able to get the commitment to justice part. I was able to get the emotional and social maturity part of being a social activist. 
without never fall totally into the, the trap of being single-minded to be dogmatic uh, and over yeah dogmatic and so on yeah and, and you know what helped me a lot with this is the fact that my girlfriend my then girlfriend who is now my wife she was totally outside the movement she gave me a foot I have a foot outside the movement, a foot inside, if you will. So I have a sense of reality when in my private life, if you will. You see what I mean? So the fact that I was open-minded, even my private life, is something that also helped me build this character. I feel very, I mean, lucky to be alive, you know, having been, gone through that. But also what I learned and the way I built my academic and my personality my academic career, my personality out of that experience is something that I, I really cherish. The movement I was part of is still alive in Benin, but it's very marginal, you know, because they, they never change. They stay very ideological, very close-minded and so on, you know, but I was able to maybe transition out of it. Okay. So, I mean, we've gone through your background, I guess, just transitioning to your research because there is a lot, there's a lot to mm-hmm. cover. Reading through your research, and you alluded to this, it's it's interesting how how often your background shapes your theories and and your your research agenda. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, your your famous paper on mistrust in the slave trade with Nathan Nunn is is a prime example because mm-hmm. Nathan he, he said you talked with him about how back in Benin there were even common sayings or phrases yeah. Yeah. that people used to describe dishonest individuals. So, so can you talk about how this theory? on the origins of mistrust came about? Yeah. One of the things I do quite well is even when, my, when I'm speaking to people, something can just hit me and I oppose and say, what is this? Does this make sense? And then start pushing the idea into turning it until turning that into research. I was having a conversation with my wife one morning we were speaking our our native language, and she was. We we're talking about her her experience in primary school, and she said she was talking. She was referring to one of her classmates, and said she was constantly. She's not trusting at all. And she was constantly saying, "So and so is going to sell you. So and so is going to make you disappear." Okay, and I was like, she was eight or nine, and then saying like everyone else that her friend can make people disappear, her friend can make, can sell people. And I was like, oh, maybe this might have some connection with uh, slave exports. And then later on, I was like, I started paying more attention to some of the most popular songs in Benin. And it's all about Many of the most popular songs that I used to sing when I was young was about you have to be very careful about dealing with people. Your people from your family can basically don't trust people, even people from your family. They can sell you. They can they can kill you. They can do this and so on. And it became very clear to me that there is something there. When Nathan came, I was like, well... You know, she, she just presented a paper on the long-term impact of slave exports on development. And I talked to him about 
this intuition that I had about a you know, relationship between trust and level of trust, interpersonal trust, and, and slave export. And, you know, we have the Afrobarometer data, he has the slave export data, put them together, and bingo, there was a correlation. And then we started pushing the analysis, and it's very robust. Then we started looking around and talking to people from other communities in Africa. There are a lot of similarities between my experience in Benin and basically what they experience in their own community. So that's how the paper came about. Fast forward, like a few years later, when I had a draft of the paper and I had an interview on national TV and I presented it. I presented the main finding, you know, in a very non-technical way. It was incredible. Every single people I talked to afterwards, they recognized themselves through the article, through the finding of the article. And people were giving a lot of, talking about their life experience, how, especially in communities that are close to the the south, close to the slave, I mean, to the slave ports of Wida, how the culture of mistrust is so deep. Something that you do not observe when you move north. So anyway, so that's how the paper came about. And obviously, I'm extremely proud to have worked on this paper with Nathan because it gets us to better understand the development challenges in Africa, but also how to best make use of the past to explain current outcome. Methodologically, it was superbly well executed. It's one of my, I think... I'm, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure it's the same with Nathan. I think clearly one of the highlights of our, I think our, our academic careers, you know, and obviously I cannot find a better scholar, better individual to write this paper with. He's such a, <laughs> he's such a, he's such a fantastic human being, especially these days where there is a lot of negativity about economics profession being this or that. I tend to be very careful because there are individuals who are just totally different, who do things differently, who care deeply about the topic that they are covering. And uh, this is uh, it's good. And so I guess this is a good segue. So switching from the more theory kind of philosophical paper to one of your more famous experiments on clientelism and voting behavior, yeah, yeah. which is a great paper. I love this paper. So just to kind of sum it, you, right, you took a real world presidential kind of candidates running in Benin. Mm -hmm. You measure the impact of clientelist appeals, essentially just promising voters patronage handouts versus more public policy oriented appeals, promising, for example, healthcare or or education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And essentially, right, you find patronage worked everywhere. So but but okay, so before we talk about the the findings of the paper, my first question is going through my PhD process and, and ethics reviews and all this, how the hell did you get presidential candidates to <laughs> agree to be randomly chosen to deliver uh, patronage appeals to policy speeches? How logistically or practically did you pull the experiment off? Okay, so basically, I became increasingly frustrated with political science, the way they just put people in boxes. You know, like they say, well, in Africa, politics has to be intrinsically clientelist. Or ethnic, right? Yeah, or whatever shaped by tribe, by ethnic appeal, and, you know. And what I find even most insulting was when people think that it's all about cash, you know, when you give petty amount of money 
small amount of money to people. They are grateful for you or to you for their whole life. And they just vote for you the rest of their lives, you know. And I really thought that that's not true. That in fact, when I was growing up, I know people line up to vote because they hope for the better. And I know that as an activist, at least young people were very, very committed to something bigger than themselves and for, for their immediate future. People fought and died for democracy. So why is it that election can only be about some kind of exchange of vote for things, small things, you know? So I said, okay, how can I make that point? How can I show that I can sort of go against this kind of conventional wisdom? So I thought about, and then, you know, I was at Yale. I had somebody, you know, Don Green, who is now at Columbia, who was pushing for experimental political science. And I applied. I gave him the sense of what I wanted to do. He said, oh, yeah, go ahead. So let me find the most, the strongest. Let's make the strongest case possible against the idea that African politics is intrinsically clientelism ethnic. So I went, talked to the political actors, and I in Benin, yeah. And then I said, okay, what is your message? And then, okay, can we purify the message? One would be very broad and public policy oriented, and the other one would be the clientelist targeted redistributing type message. And obviously, we tend to forget this, but for three months, they run a campaign going to places and places, you know, day and night and so on. So all I was asking is a small space to try this. And I said, okay, I work with uh, four candidates representing the political, the political elite, and I get each of them to randomly pick two places where they can run one, the other, I mean, like the purify targeted redistribution message, the programmatic message, policy message, and then the rest will serve as control. And I was going to pay for it. So is experimental campaigning that they agreed to do with me, they agreed to do it, and they didn't fear at all that this will affect the result of the election because it was a tiny percentage of the places where they are campaigning anyway. It was the very first time, you know, this type of campaign was done in a nationwide election. And what came out was, at the same time, a bit depressing and hopeful. First of all, depressing because overall, the targeted message works. The patronage works. Yeah. Okay. But then it didn't work with everyone in the same way. It worked less on women than men, worked less on people who are more informed, like reading newspaper more often than others. And it, it didn't work as much in the most cosmopolitan district. You know, places where you see multicultural, like commercial city, for instance. And also it didn't work as well for candidates in opposition as for the candidate who are incumbent candidates. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it shows that while it works in general, it is not nearly as effective. Actually, 
is counterproductive for opposition, counterproductive in basically cosmopolitan cities, it also counterproductive on female voters, you know. So first of all, what I learned from that uh, exercise is that you can actually experiment with campaigning for the better. You can actually embed experimental research in your actual campaign activities, mm-hmm. you know. So I learned from that. But also I learned that, in fact, it's possible to make programmatic policy-oriented campaign work. So since then, I've never, never done an experiment in which the treatment was clientelism. I said, my research going forward would be, how would you make programmatic campaigning effective? How do you communicate and win on issues? You know, and I run this experiment twice in Benin. After that, I run one in the Philippines. And I find that, in fact, if programmatic campaigning, issue-based campaigning is done in the context of a town hall meeting, it's as effective or sometimes more effective than business as usual. Mm -hmm. What I learned from that experience is that the same way we can collaborate with business owners to try some auction mechanism to get them to choose better pricing and strategies and so on. You can actually work closely with politicians mm-hmm. to learn about the best way to communicate complex ideas and messages to voters. And that ties into your deliberative democracy, your interest in deliberative democracy. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I think okay, we study politics too much from the outside, mm-hmm. observe from the outside and make assumptions about politicians, about voters. But I think more and more we should embed our, our research strategies in real campaign in a way that's ethical, in a way that small scale to a point where it's not going to affect the overall outcome of the election, you know, the same way we, we do vaccine, you know what I mean? Like yeah. nobody will give you the permission to willingly make somebody sick, mm-hmm. but you can actually do a tiny stuff to prevent people from getting sick. Yeah. You, you see what I mean? So, and this is it's a similar idea. And, uh, you know, it's becoming more and more popular. And I think it's one of the things that I would like, I would like to keep pushing, yeah. you know, so that we have a political science, which is not job observational in a sense that people just collect data, but also political science, which is basically about working together with partners who are active in politics to test ideas. I think it's a great thing and I hope I hope it continues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe speaking of you, this is kind of a recurring theme using your your background to shape your research and your, your theories. Another example is your work on missionary schools, right? Your hometown in, in Benin had one of the first schools set up by missionaries. You you mentioned it when you were going through your, your story. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna get really nerdy and, and fanboy a bit here, but I was at a conference with uh, you were at in, in Lisbon and April of last 
hear it, Nova? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you you were a keynote speaker. I was very excited to hear you. This was the first time. <laughs> and you you talked a bit a bit about these missionary schools and your early experience with them, and how you know this experience has informed this new research project you're you're working on. So can you talk mm-hmm. you, can you talk about the research you're doing around these missionary schools in Benin? What's the question you're looking at, and how did you experience inform it? Yeah. So again, when talking to some of my family members, my older brother in particular, I quickly realized how exceptional the place my family was and or is and how exceptional my village was. And I was asking my, you know, we were just with my brother, we were basically reminding ourselves the life we live when we were there and what we became. And I quickly realized that in my cohort of 40 kids, 13 of us has PhD. And I was, no, this is not possible. And then my brother is not a PhD, but he might as well be a PhD. I mean, he is so curious. He's so nerdy on everything and so on. And I was like, well, why this is? And then it came to early, the kids who went to school, early and the way they were connected to the community and the example that they basically represented and how this shaped the aspirations and the drive to academic excellence of the whole community. And the accident that I just described, the exceptional level of achievement that I just described started from the school being set up early, you know, late 19th century, and people who went to that school just shaping people's beliefs and aspiration in education early on. And we were, we were just, the, and we were strongly impacted by it. When the, it became very apparent to me that aspiration can be a driver for social mobility, mm-hmm. became apparent to me that people can basically ignore their circumstances where they live and live as if they are elsewhere, believe the future that they are dreaming about. When I, when I became very apparent, I said, okay, this is going to be the paper that I'm going to write. But then I told myself, I don't want just to have a case study of my village and say, look what's happened to us. I want to see whether... This is a typical story. See whether similar communities have similar experience so that I can can see whether, in fact, my village is typical or just exceptional. I let that story, I designed a project which is very much applied micro and history. So I find a way to select similar communities and... I select the one in which school came about more or less by chance. You know, it's not like somebody planned to set up a school there and it happened because schools set up by missionaries, they didn't know when they were in Rome or in France, whether they are going to set up a school in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. You see what I mean? But it's some random. So I was able to select places like this and then I designed I created, basically, I designed a research project as if 
it was an experiment. It was a, an experiment that Vatican designed then to see what, what could be the effect of education on not only economic and social well-being of individuals, but also across generations. I designed the project and I collect the data and what I find was really stunning. I find that in fact, those who were close, like my parents were, to students who went to school, in the long term, descendants did much better than those whose kids actually went to school. You see what I mean? Assume that your grandfather were one of the lucky ones to have been to school. My father was living near him. What happened three generations later is that I'm doing better than you, which is counterintuitive because you should expect that. Education should, should be the thing that... Exactly. But you're really saying the aspiration is... Exactly. Exactly. And no, what is interesting, the aspiration was the initial driver, but also it was persistent. You see what I mean? Like, because we are not talking about the second generation here. You know, it's not like, well, when my, I see my uncle or I see my neighbor doing very well, my dad pushes me not to be like him, but be like my neighbor. So he gets me to work hard to be who I, what I am. Mm-hmm. But for this to carry to the third and fourth generation is very unusual. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So, yeah, it's something that I'm extremely excited about to the point where I'm doing a similar project in Nigeria, in Kenya, in New Orleans, maybe in Jamaica, you know? So similar methodology, but to understand the power of networks and aspiration in driving social mobility. It's really, okay, first of all, what I like about this is that I can see myself entirely through the project, mm-hmm. you know, which is because I'm very much the embodiment of the story I'm telling. My grandfather did not go to school, but, my, but his neighbors were, went to school. I'm embodiment of that, that, that story. But at the same time, it shows that we, the demand for education is important and the demand can be driven by uh, your environment. You know, an environment is not like wealthy. It's not like, you know, it's just being an environment where it's stimulating, where it's, and I think school, every school that's set up, we shouldn't just worry about teachers. We shouldn't just worry about parents, whether the parents can afford or not, that's important. We shouldn't just worry about peer effects among children. Mm-hmm. We should also worry about a social environment that gets kids to demand, mm-hmm. to kids to want to. Yeah. And that's, I, that's to me what, when I listened to you say this, I just kept thinking of a, a lot of problems in, I mean, the United States has this too, you know, I know. Gated, gated communities where the wealthy kids are just like, pretty much cut off from all the other kids in, in exactly. the ladder. And when they don't interact, there's none of that kind of aspirational transference. Everyone stays in their own silo. And to me, that really limits aspiration because kids at the bottom of the ladder get kind of hopeless, right? There's this despondency. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think, I mean, for instance, I can 
think of environments where I, I'm highly, I'm far more connected to communities in Trenton, the city near Princeton, and than where I am. You know, like for instance, Princeton is 10 minutes away from Trenton, you know, the, 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 near, the nearest uh, big city, but we have no interaction, zero. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids, you know, I can see Princeton, for instance, set up kind of have small companies and whatever that get people working, people from Trenton to work there and to have the opportunity to meet with scientists and professors from here. There are kind of several set of social events that organize where I think it's, it's really, really important. It's something that needs to be engineered as a way to support education. You know, it should be central part of education. Uh, but, but, and also another thing which is exceptional is that, I mean, in many, we talk about education in Africa and developing countries. There are clusters of ridiculous academic excellence. You know, like mm. in this Benin, I have colleagues who are top engineers in, here in the U.S. who are from Benin. I have some classmates who are medical doctors and scientists, you know, I mean, their background is, uh, you know, like mine, but yet they, they are very much at the top. And, and I think we need to look at these things more closely and mm-hmm. do this as a way to design education policies. Well, and this, I mean, this dovetails really nicely with, with or segues nicely, I should say, like the importance of education and human capital to your work founding and running the African School of Economics, right? Or, or ASD. So, so maybe I, I'll, ask, I'll ask about this. Yeah. Right, because you founded ASC in, in 2014, mm-hmm. now one of the most elite universities on the African continent. Yeah. And so, so I mean, first, can you, can you talk about how the ASC came about, how you decided to attempt this incredible feat <laughs> of founding a new university? In, yeah, in- I think it, it directly linked to my social activism because I see, even from the beginning, I saw myself not just as a, an academic writing papers, but also as a social entrepreneur in the academic field, you know? So I always wanted to basically, yeah, to bring up young Africans interested in economics into the profession. I was doing that on individual basis early on, but then I thought that I should do it more at institutional level. So that's why I set up the school. The goal is really to get young Africans to be passionate about research, to resolve the issue of representation of Africans in the academic profession and all that. And now for the past uh, four years, you know, we have placed about 20 students in top PhD program in the U.S. and Canada. I have my former student working at the World Bank and African Development Bank and so on. I even have one who, in three years, became one of the trusted advisors of uh, the president of Togo. Unfortunately, he passed away two weeks ago. In three, we have done so well in four years. Now, what, as, as you might have heard, the next step for this is beside... Can I ask, before you get on the next step, yeah, I yeah. Want to add, like, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll ask about the future a little later. Yeah, yeah okay, okay. One of the things, like to start at the beginning, because one of the things that the Charter Seas Institute where I'm at works, we work with several 
new city projects. And, and one of their aims, mm-hmm. several of them, is to start up a, a new kind of leading university. This is a huge gap. Mm-hmm. You know, you've actually done it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? They're dying to know managerially, uh, practically, what were the steps you took in, in first getting the ASC off the ground, getting it up running fi- financially and operationally? And then second, from there, how did you go about growing it, both the number of programs and, and the number of locations? Yeah, so in terms of this, what I did is to, first of all, set up a research institute. And that predated the founding. Yeah, research institute so that I can study the markets, the demand for master's program, and then to also try to instill some research capacity in the future university that I'm going to set up. Because I always thought that either it does research or it doesn't exist. You know, I mean, like, I cannot see a way of teaching graduate level without some hands-on research activities that students are part of or faculty are part of. So as a result, early on, I started doing that research. And then based on the research, I have a name, reputation, and then I set up a small program. Two, mathematical statistics, business administration. I can charge low tuition because research projects we have a lot of research projects that help fund the school. I also decided to invest a lot in faculty, not in facilities. Most people who set up universities, they think like, well, you know, you need to have a fancy building, high tech, and then no. I think, uh, especially today with the fact that many schools, so okay, many schools have PhD program and there are a lot of students who finish PhDs looking for academic job, it's a great opportunity to actually be able to identify and to hire good faculty. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that I did was to make sure, so financially research is important, but second is about really recruit good faculty and so on. And uh, so, and be be patient, you know, I mean, it's about placement. I do the best that I can, and I make sure that 90% of the students, either they go to a research departments at a private institution or banks or public institution or government, or they go for a PhD. So very selective, small classrooms, small cohorts, and, and high level of high, high placement. Because I mean, when you are doing private, creating private university, it's easy to have the commercial mentality, you know? And I think building reputation with placement, building reputation with research is just priceless. You know, so that's Mm -hmm. what I have been doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And can I ask what, because I mean, this is just a fascinating story. So, what were in founding the ASC? Yeah. Were some of the most difficult challenges? Or, Or, I guess, put it a different way, what should these other education innovators that come after you? What should they look out for when they try and find found their own higher ed institute? I think the first difficulty is being very creative about funding. Because if, I mean, like most private universities who are ambitious, they charge a ridiculously high tuition. You know, I mean, some 
like 18,000, 20,000, you know, 30,000 in some places. That's totally ridiculous. And the ASC charges? charges oh, ASC is 5,000 maximum. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even two when students can work while they are studying. So they also tend to be very dependent, you know, like running around, you know, asking foundation for help and so on. But I think you need to generate activities that like research or other type of activities that will get you a different. So, you know, funding is an issue. And second is administrative. It's still the case that it's only in only in the US where you can be top and be private. Elsewhere, when you are very top, you are public. You know, private universities, they tend not to. You know, I mean, like you have exception, like Bocconi in Italy, you know, which is private. But even in Europe and in Canada, for instance, most of top universities are public universities. You know, so this is the mindset that people have. The idea that you can be private and provide high, high quality education is nothing, some, something that sits very, very well. So sometimes, you know, you, you get a lot of push, not pushback, but hard, you know, the bureaucrats give you a tough time. So accreditation, for instance, might take a while because of that. You can get a bit, you can get a bit frustrated you can, because you can tell yourself, you know, I'm already here and what are you telling me to do? So so that's a second problem, your problem with the local bureaucrats, creative about, about, about funding. But, but, but besides that, you know, the big picture is to be able to say the top economic advisor of the president of Ghana is my student. Mm-hmm. The top young African economists, the only one who graduated from Penn State with blah, 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 is my student. You know what I mean? That's basically, you have to look at the big picture. You have to be patient with bureaucrats. And also you have to find creative way of funding your activities by, by, by keeping the tuition very, very, very low. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so basically that's what, you will get a lot of pushback. You just got to be patient and have yeah. an eye on the big picture. And so uh, speaking of the big picture, so, I mean, you've talked about placements and, you know, you've been successful at placing mm-hmm. your graduates at, at pretty elite universities abroad. And then if they, if they go to private sector or industry, they've gone on to the World Bank or mm-hmm. economic advisors for governments or African Development Bank, et cetera. So other than placements, I guess, what, what are your metrics of success for ASE? Let's do currently, like right now, and then and then I'll ask you uh, about the future. Yeah, I mean, my met, my metric of success currently is the international reputation. I think people from Latin America may have seen a student of ASC, and then they'll you know wanted to work with us, and the, you know the the fact that every single day, or I mean, every single day, no. In a, now and then, several universities in the U.S., in Europe, particularly U.K. and France, come to us and say, okay, let's develop a joint degree program. Let's organize a conference together. Let's have faculty exchange. You know, I mean, the fact that you, regardless of the ranking, you know, that people come to you and want to work with you because of your reputation for excellence, I think that's, that's the best. Where we are not where we need to be, and this is going to change, is we have individuals who are former students, former faculty, who are 
advisors to governments. But we would like to have more permanent kind of institutional relationships with the Ministry of Development Planning, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Education, so that we can, you know, we can play a much bigger role in advising policymakers. You know, see what I mean? So well, for me, that's what it is. Like international reputation, policy, placement, placement in PhD and placement in private, public you know, research institutions. Yeah, so that, that's how I see it, yeah. And then, so I guess zooming out five, 10 years down the line, what's the, what's the longer term vision? Yeah, okay. So let, let me put it this way. Longer term, is already, it has already started. One of the things that we like to do is we want to have a world-class African Academy of Science and Technology that is more or less housed at the African School of Economics. So what I would like to see is, for instance, to have all African scientists, and God, there are so many, so many of them who are scattered, who don't even know about each other's work at all. And as a result, we can organize a conference every year where we can have 2,000, 3,000 of African scientists and international scientists working with them join forces, we organize social events that every one of us is familiar with the work we are doing. So this is, you see what I mean? I want the academic program to go on, but I also want to be a place where the most active, committed African scientists come as part of an academy. You, you see what I mean? A network or a hub. Yeah, or... exactly. Yeah. So, so we already started that. We set up last June the Pan-African Research Council. And as of today, we, we, we have about 40, uh, 400 people who apply to be members. And we are going to, like any serious learned society, we are going to have fellows, junior fellows and members. We are going to be organized like any serious academy. So. It's important that people who are committed to research, they are recognized by being a member of an association which is recognized as, you know, you see what I mean? So that's one goal. We already started that we are going to build more and more. Hopefully, um, the association will be housed at ASC in Africa, but also be We'll have uh, a window to the U.S. Academy here. So I'm working with Princeton so that we have an office here as well. So, so that's one thing. You see what I mean? What this is going to do is what every student will be so embedded in a network of extremely talented, active scientists, whether they are economists or not. And this can only be good for them. This can only be great for their self-esteem, great for their professional and, and aspiration and so on. It will build collaborative collaboration across disciplines, you know, something that for me is the future of, of research. And, and policy advice, right? Like yeah, you, exactly. So for instance, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Giving them advice, we, yeah. Yeah, you have the best, you know. I mean, for instance, on health, we have a committee, uh, research committee on biomedical research 
you have their name, you have their credential, we can set up a committee immediately to talk to the government, to the government of Mozambique to see how we can deal with this or that, you know, and so on. So, so that's one big objective. But the second one is we, we already started, but it's basically we are going to have two campuses, but then I would like to franchise ASC. You know, basically we can select 20 universities that will do the undergrad curriculum of ASC. You see what I mean? So you can be influential without having a physical campus presence in every country. You see what I mean? So, and, and I, this is a way to push for collaboration. This is a way to, so that's one of the goals that I would like to achieve, which is franchise ASC model of econ training in several countries as a way to expand without basically doing in a very costly and very inefficient way. Again, focus on a, you know, by physical presence in a couple of places, but then franchise scale up, scale up that way. You know, like for instance, let's say I talk to the University of whatever University of Lomé, and I I talk to the the president and say, okay, can we set up a joint degree? Can you set up a degree in economics, and you run it? entirely, but the curriculum is provided by us. The faculty is also recruited by us, you know, that well. So you basically are the filter for quality exactly. and all the admin stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And then, so, so that's one objective. And then the, the last one is to have a presence in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I would like to be accredited in the U.S. as an university and to be a global HBCUs, you know, historical black college in economics, because I strongly believe that finding a way to get African diaspora to connect the continent directly, it's just very, very important. So I think it's important to have a place here where you can connect with African-American here, but also black from Colombia, from Brazil, from the Caribbean and stuff. And I think having a campus even a small, tiny campus here will be just totally priceless, you know? So that's, that's basically what it is. So three things. Create a, an association of all African scientists so that we can, we can take a leadership role in getting a strong networks of African scientists and connect them with scientists around the world, blah, blah, blah. We don't want, we don't want to be isolated, of course. And second is franchise our the training program so that we can keep the cost low and yet keep you know quality high. And then third is the presence in the US, which I think is it will be will be priceless. I mean, first of all, it's a great market for private universities. At the same time, I mean if you have a some fantastic reputation, I think you will do very well here. And but also, you know, I'm committed to to be here and regardless what's happened after retirement. I think I'm going to spend a lot of time here. So I am as well have some presence in the US, you know, because it's such a, such a great place to build uh, an institution like this. Yeah. Yeah. This is interesting. Zooming out a bit and looking at the various theories of 
fundamental determinants of, of economic development, right? If, if you look at the kind of various schools, there's the, the culture schools, you know, Nathan Nunn probably falls in there, guys like Joe Henrik, culture matters. Uh, there's, there's the geography folks, Jeffrey Sachs, Jared Diamond, geography matters, institutions, right? There, there's Asimo Glenn Robinson. And then there's the, the human capital accumulation. Yes, uh, yeah. Paul Romer and, and Ed Glazer and those guys. What kind of, as you were talking, what spurred in my mind, does all your time and effort founding the African School of Economics suggest you're the you're in the human capital group of people? You're with Romer and, and Glazer or, or, or not? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you can see on my research, I'm everywhere. You know, I'm on Human Capital with Education Project, not only as an entrepreneur, but also in research. I'm very much in culture because of my work with Nathan. I'm also in institutions with macro institutions, but more micro institutions because my experiments are all about institutions. You know, I don't experiment policy much. I tend to experiment institutions. I think it might be good for me to remain a bit eclectic. You know, like some at any point in time, I might have projects running on either of those three things. But at the same time, at the end of the day, what is going to be, I hope, my most important accomplishment is the fact that I'm basically working to push science and social science in particular at highest level. And I'm very lucky that I can do it while I'm still thinking and writing, you know, because mm -hmm. it's not like I can spend all my day you know, running, talking to basically my admin people. I can talking to my my co-authors and my research assistants. And you know, see what I mean? The fact that I can remain in Africa and here, the fact that I can be well entrenched in academics and also in institution building world, the fact that I can be doing human capital research at the highest level, culture, institution at the same time. It, I don't know. I think it's something I just feel like I'm very, very lucky that I can juggle all this together because mm -hmm. I have, as I told you, if you listen to what I was saying, I'm very, I embrace the culture kind of cultural economics. But at the same time, I see sometimes people push the culture argument a bit too far and as if it explains everything you were as a result you are and you will be you know you, so, you've learned you've learned since you gave up socialism not to remain <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah but then at the same time one of the things that i really care about a lot is that you can realign you can design realign institutions to get to fix things to get things better you know to make well, things happen. This comes back to your window of opportunity argument with your, your doc, you can go straight into democracy if you're given specific, there's there's some agency there. Okay, so I have two more questions about the African School of Economics. So, okay. so there's no doubt that you've gone over this. One of your rationales, maybe the key rationale for starting ASC is because mm -hmm. there are so few African economists, at, at especially at elite universities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're a tenured professor at Princeton. Yeah, yeah. Notably, Arthur Lewis, a Nobel Prize winning economist, was also a professor at Princeton. Yeah. And 
I know Lewis is from St. Lucia's. He's from the, the Caribbean, not the continent, but he did serve as, as an economic advisor to many African governments, right? He drafted Ghana's first five-year plan after seven. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, given, given both your prominence and, and the fact that you both ended up at Princeton, did you take any inspiration from Arthur Lewis? What lessons did you, did you learn from him? Oh, both? absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I feel so bad that I never met him personally before he passed, you know, because he, did, he died not long ago. And I wish I could have met with him and talked to him. In fact, one of my tenants, my first tenants, when we moved from New York to Princeton, he was the former amb his ambassador of St. Lucia. You know, so he knows Arthur Lewis very well. Anyway, I missed the opportunity. So I find him really, really, really inspiring by the originality of his work. You know, the fact that, you know, he, I mean, that's why he won the Nobel Prize, right? Because he... He basically is a pioneer, a challenge, existing views about development and the assumption that technological development will trickle down directly from to the agricultural sector, that social transformation will be possible naturally. I find the originality of his work extremely inspiring. I also find the fact that at the prime of his career, he went to Ghana and worked for, for governments to be something really, really inspiring. I wish, I mean, one day I would be able to meet with his family and learn more about his life. And, um, and I also wish that in the future at ASC, we can celebrate him because one of the things that we need to do more is to, ex to promote past research done by, by, by African-Americans, by Africans, so that we can build on them, you know, so that we can serve an inspiration for. It's come the aspirational. I was just going to mention, right? Exactly. Exactly. No, absolutely. Yeah. Last question on, on ASC and then yeah. I'll, I'll finish up. So us at the Institute, I mean, we, we are very curious. Mm -hmm. Are there any plans of starting up or offering say a master's of city management or a master's of city administration at the ASC anytime soon? Our math and econ program is set, but our management master's is open, you know? So I think we can, you, we can have a, we can clearly have a track. We already have a track in finance, but in a track in, in finance, oh, sorry, in, in uh, city management, for instance, is something that we can always introduce, you know? So what I'm saying is not, when the opportunity comes, we'll be very happy to take it on, you know, because, but something to, to note is that we try to thrive into providing foundational training, you know, like a student will be well-trained in the fundamentals. But then if there is an opportunity for them to do urban economics and city management and stuff, yes, we can always uh, do something like that. So I'll be very happy to talk more about it, to see, you know, avenue for collaboration. Yeah, that would be good. And so I wanted to close by sort of giving folks a sense of the the crazy and, and daunting range of your interests. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we spoke, Leonard, right, you, you talked about wanting to build a museum in Benin. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about your motivation and, you know, why, why do you want to build a museum? What's the vision for, for this project? So basically, I feel like Africa and Benin in particular is one of the places where history is so important. There is so much to learn. 
and yet there is little investment. You know, and you cannot just count on governments to do it. Universities have to take this on. One of the things that we like to do is to raise money to turn some historical sites into museums. The materials are there, you know. So, for instance, the female warriors, the Amazons, like it's a very sophisticated institution dating back to 18th century or late 17th century, where every conflict like involved an all-female elite military units. They were like Spartan women, Exactly, exactly. One third of the the regular army. And there are are a lot of, I was able to, for instance, get uh, the rifle that one of them used during the war against the French. I was able to identify, my team in Benin was able to identify about 60 of them who basically died in the 50s and 40s we are going to we are profiling all of them so small scale project like this and do a lot of promotion activities around it so that could be wonderful so that's one of the projects another one for instance is i was able to identify with a colleague of mine from brazil digitized passport of 200 2500 plus former slave from brazil who returned to africa Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about slave trade of leaving Africa. We don't talk enough about return. Mm-hmm. Each of them has an incredibly fascinating story. You know, they were free, became entrepreneur, decided to go and, and settle in Africa. So much happened during mid 18th century. So there should be a place where young people from here, from Africa, can, can come and discover these things. So... It shouldn't be too difficult to do because those are research projects. We are collecting data. We are collecting archival material around them. It's just a matter of showcasing those materials and have specialist historians to be able to, to put them together and show people. You know, anyway, so this is going to be part of ASC. So ASC has institutes to do all sorts of research, finance and survey and stuff. But one will be on African studies. And the African Studies Institute, for instance, will have small-scale museums to showcase African history. And hopefully this is going to get more and more, you know, social entrepreneurs or governments to do the same, you know. Because, I mean, it's sad the extent to which African history is so little showcase in museum you know every single town and city in benin for instance in togo should have a museum but you are lucky if you find two in the whole country absolutely yeah so on top of princeton professor former <laughs> political refugee uh, founder, university founder you're also a potential museum benefactor yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> i can't stop because i mean i can't whenever i'm so like fascinated by African history, because I mean, basically, the town I was born is close to the kingdom, the capital city of Kingdom of Dahomey, and you keep hearing incredible stories. Mm-hmm. You know, like for instance, King Glele was is incredibly talented. I came across letters that he written that he was he was ex- having uh, like mail exchanges with Bismarck. I came across that. 
you know, it buried somewhere on the internet. And then he was also an artist and a choreographer. Mm. It's, it's incredible. And then, you know, I mean, like, there is nowhere where you can go and learn about, about who he was in his life, you know, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God I can delegate some of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's fantastic. And Leonard Wanchkon, that's all the questions I had. Thank so you. thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank and you. And a great discussion. And honestly, best of luck with the future. Absolutely. Of- yeah. Thank you cool. very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast. Podcast.